John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. That's our text today. What a beautiful text. If you ask me what my favorite portion of Scripture is, I generally will tell you the the one that I studied most recently. Oh, I like John chapter 4. And so grateful for the chance to be able to talk about it. Today's text, besides recounting the conversion to Christ of a Samaritan woman, describes Jesus' first self-revelation as the Messiah. That's huge. It's striking. It's surprising that he not only chose to reveal himself as the promised Savior to a Gentile, to a non-Jewish person, but that he did it to a Gentile woman, one who was living in sin. The encounter seems to have been orchestrated, seems to be writing in bold letters and highlighted the fact that God loves everyone. He doesn't reject anyone. And as you've been studying in the past few weeks the Gospel of John, the eternal word taking on human flesh, he who is life, he who is light, he in whom we're called to believe in, the one about whom testimony was given, the one whom receiving we become God's children, the one through whom comes grace and truth, Uh, The perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. All of that in chapter 1. And then chapter 2 is completely different. The wedding feast at Cana. The cleansing of the temple. And chapter 3 is completely different from chapter 2 with the, the interview with Nicodemus. And... I'd like for us to think a bit about some contrast between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, particularly between the people with whom Jesus interacted in John 3 and chapter 4. The nationality of Nicodemus, a Jewish man, a religious one at that, and the main character of John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman, a Gentile, and an immoral one at that. In terms of their occupation, Nicodemus, a studied man, a theologian, and the Samaritan woman, someone from the country, no formal education. In terms of knowledge of the Messiah, Nicodemus believed that Jesus had been sent by God. The Samaritan woman had no idea who Jesus was. In terms of their financial situation, Nicodemus, a wealthy man, the Samaritan woman, a a poor person. As to their social standing, Nicodemus was a part of Israel's elite, and the Samaritan woman, the lowest of her society, despised by her own and despised by the Israelites. Jesus surprises I hope that you're seeing that. The intent of the Gospel of John is to confront us. Are we going to believe? Yesterday with Daniel and Eileen, we went to a fish sort of place. And there were a lot of exhibits explaining the different kinds of fish. And on one of the exhibits, or underneath one of the exhibits, the the explanation was 
that the fish was agape. When I see this word, thinking of a Christian context, I see that word and I think, so yesterday I'm at this fish place and I see talk of the fish being, and I say, agape, oh, what a loving fish. No, no, that's not the idea. Agape means of the mouth, wide open, especially with surprise or wonder. It's interesting to me that a lot of fish live agape. And I think, why are they, well, if it was a human, it would be kind of awestruck. I believe I'm supposed to live agape, mouth wide open, not to eat as much as I like to eat, but wide open it, I can't believe God would love me. I can't believe God would save me. I can't believe he's had this plan from ages past. Awestruck. I can't get over how much he loved and he loves Israel and, and what a plan he has. John Newton said, since God saved me, I do not think it difficult that he could save anybody. Agape, in wonder, especially with surprise. And I think that that's the way that we should approach Scripture, and that's the way we should approach life. We sang during the breaking of bread, I stand amazed in his presence. Far too often, instead of standing, I've gone through the motions. Instead of being amazed, I've been unimpressed, insensitive, and predictable. Instead of standing amazed in his presence far too often, I've lived as if God doesn't make a real difference in life. Do we really stand amazed? Are we really awestruck? Do we really think that it's wonderful who God is and what he has done? And I think it's amazing as we go through the Gospel of John. And this is Easter week. It's, it's the big of the big, right? And are we going to go through it just saying, yeah, Jesus died, and yeah, oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. And he rose from the dead. Yeah, what else would you expect God to do? Let's not be unimpressed. Let's be wide mouth agape all the time. He died for you and for me. He rose again with great power. That's a huge deal. Let's not go through life with our mouth shut. Let's live agape. Well, we aren't talking about John chapter 4, right? So let's read first six verses of John chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It seems like the Pharisees may have been trying to divide John and Jesus' followers. In fact, 
John the Baptist's goal was being accomplished. You recall that John 3.30, uh, this is what he said. He must increase. The Lord Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And so maybe trying to sow a bit of jealousy there or competition. Um, Christians do that sometimes, you know. And John the Baptist's goal was being accomplished. Does Jesus, in fact, increase? How do people around you know that you belong to Jesus? Is it evident? Is it obvious? Not in a heavy-handed sort of way. Do people believe that you're for real? Do you read the Bible? Do you enjoy reading the Bible? Uh, Does the Bible make a difference in your life? Do you talk about the Lord just naturally, not to impress others, but is is it a reflection of what's going on inside, that you live in wonder and amazement about the Lord? Do you treat your spouse with love and respect? Is it evident that you belong to Jesus? Jesus, we're told in verse 3, left Judea, went to Galilee. Jesus intentionally thwarted the Pharisees' plan. He also wanted the Gentiles to hear the gospel. Um, It takes a couple of people to have a a good fight. What do you do to de-escalate conflict? So that as much as it depends on you, you can be at peace with everyone. Do you intentionally try to reduce conflict around? Verse 4 tells us that he had to pass through Samaria. Isn't that an interesting thing? He had to do it. It was a divine appointment rather than a geographic accident. He went there to help a needy woman. Do you go out of your way to speak to people about their spiritual need? How far out of your way do you go? How often do you go out of your way to speak to people? about Jesus. Samaria was founded by Omri. It was the northern kingdom's capital. Um, Those who lived in Samaria were exiled to Assyria in 722 BC. I'd like to read a few verses in 2 Kings chapter 17. Would you turn there, please? 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. I'm going to read verse 6 initially. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, This king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And then also in 2 Kings verse 24 and following. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. And it came to pass about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them. And behold, they killed them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. 
So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Verse 29, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. And the men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. And why does a preacher choose a passage like this? But anyway, um, it helps us understand a little bit about what was going on there. And the Sephrovites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord. So they had all these other gods, verse 32. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. And down to verse 41 of Second Kings 17. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. Their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they did to this day. So a little bit to explain the, the animosity between the Israelites and the Samaritans. The Samaritans had quite a mix of the pagan and the, uh, and the godly, the Christian, if you will. And so they had quite a mix there. The Samaritans were spiritual people but they weren't godly people, not after righteousness, not after God's way, not the way that God had commanded. Are you spiritual God's way? Do you get your tips as to what to believe and how to live and how to handle stressful situations from Scripture? Don't be just half spiritual or spiritual in a way that just makes sense to you. Do it God's way. Any other way is 100% off. There's nothing like being... I heard someone mention at a, at a prayer meeting one time. She said, pray for my friend because they're just sort of Christian. Well, there is no sort of. Make sure that you believe and live the truth. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was, was weary from the journey. Jacob's well was close to Sychar. It was fed by an underground spring. And when Jesus sat next to the well at noon, he was tired. He was tired. Did you say Jesus, whose God's son come from heaven, was tired, was weary? Wow. God... The son, you'd think, would be tireless. But at the same time, he was fully human. We sang this morning about the wondrous mystery. Oh, that's a wondrous mystery. How he humbled himself to come and live among us. His ways are beyond our grasp. How can God get tired? But he took on many of the limitations of human form. Sychar was close to Mount Gerizim. It had spiritual significance because God had spoken to his people from there. They're accustomed to hear blessings from Mount Gerizim, and the Samaritans had, had built a temple there. Uh, the Samaritans were religious people. They were spiritual people. 
They weren't indifferent to the things of God or spiritual matters. The problem is that their religion was a hodgepodge of truth and error. Make sure you've got the main things in place, that you know who Jesus is, that you know that salvation doesn't depend on you, it depends on the work of Jesus. Make sure you have the main things in place. Starting in verse 7, we read about the interview between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and I'll read 7 to 15. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. In the account of the trip of Abraham's servant searching for a wife for Isaac, Genesis 24, 11, we're told that the customary time to draw water was the late afternoon. So why didn't this woman draw water later in the day? Perhaps it was to avoid being humiliated or shamed. At the start of the account, Jesus was thirsty, weary and thirsty. And the woman had the water. Jesus had a plan. He wanted to rescue this woman from her sinful lifestyle. And he asked her a question. Would you please give me some water to drink? A question or a request can be a great way to start a conversation about spiritual things. Jesus often did that. What do you want me to do for you? What's your need? We find it very effective in our context in Bogota to go up to our neighbors or people around us and say, is it okay if I pray for you? Do you have any needs that I can pray for? And most people in the culture that Elaine and I live in welcome someone praying for them. What can I do for you? What are your needs? What are some of your concerns? Think of how through questions or through a request, you could start a conversation about spiritual things. Often I'll hear people uh, complaining in my context about how prices are going up, taxes are going up, and they'll say, I'm getting strangled, they're going to kill me. And I like to say, well, by the way, if you are killed, uh, what's going to happen to you? What do you think about, what do you think happens after you die? Maybe you can be a little bit more tactful than that. But A question is a great way to start a conversation about spiritual things. I think verse 8 is very interesting. Jesus is offering this woman something for free. 
and his disciples, his followers, are off buying things. Brings to mind that salvation is totally free, but there are matters in the Christian life. Sanctification takes effort or sacrifice. Jesus talked about having the relationship with him as being primary above all other relationships, about dying to self, about taking up your cross and following him. I'm involved in an online Bible study. We, in Bogota, we have a real desire to see more local churches started. And there's an area in the far south of the city of Bogota, a city of eight, eight and a half million, that um, really doesn't have some strong evangelical works. And so have started up a study with, with five families. We meet online on Wednesday nights, and there's 11 adults and five children, and plus me. And we've been going through the Bible. And one evening, emphasizing that salvation is free, uh, Luis Carlos, a man I've known for, for many years, said, hold it, hold it, hold it. You say salvation is free. I've heard people say that before. He said, but then I hear that you've got to do all these things. You've got to go to church. You've got to say no to a lot of things. So what is it? Is it free or not? That's a good question. God's grace is necessary for both salvation and sanctification. None of it is a human work. Neither results from self-effort or merit. However, spiritual growth cannot occur apart from action, apart from decision on the part of the Christian. It is very costly. It'll take all that you have, but it is also a work of God, even the desire to do right comes from God. So it's free and it's costly. That's another wondrous mystery. Men didn't speak in public with women, even with their wife. Rabbis shunned immoral women. Jews didn't have contact with Samaritans. Sharing a utensil with a Samaritan resulted in ceremonial uncleanness. Nonetheless, Jesus knew that God doesn't reject anyone who seeks him. Verse 10, he, he says to her, if, if you had any clue who you're talking to, Jesus is, is God's gift, the Savior provided by the Father. He's the water of life. He gave up his own life in order to save sinners. He gave himself up to death to quench the thirst for purpose and security and to make peace with God. The God-man offers salvation forgiveness of sins, abundant and eternal life, as well as the ability and the desire to glorify God. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink freely. You don't have to pay anything for it. And Many times, Scripture uses water as a metaphor of salvation. Verses 11 and 12 it's clear the woman didn't understand yet her own sinfulness and who Jesus was. She was confused. She only recognized her physical need. And Jesus talked in verse 13 about things that don't satisfy, that people go after 
money, immorality, what most people seek pleasure in. Those things don't satisfy for long. And actually, they take more from you than they give. Frances Havergal was a hymn writer. She wrote, Take my life and let it be and like a river glorious. And I like this that she said, Who can say before God who searches the heart, I am satisfied. I have no sense of thirst, no nameless craving. Are you satisfied? I do not mean are you tolerably contented and comfortable when things are at their best, but satisfied? The deep under the surface rest and complete satisfaction of the very heart, the filling of its emptiness, the stilling of all its cravings, and this not during the false frothing and excitement of business, but when you're alone, when you lie awake in the night, shut away from any fictitious filling of your cup, and when the broken cisterns have leaped out as they will and do and must, are you satisfied then? The cisterns that this world often uh, offers will break. They can't hold up under the real pressures of life. The cisterns that this world offers will leak, they do leak, and they must leak. Because anything other than the water that Jesus gives does not satisfy for long. Jesus talked about the water that he offers in verse 14. What he gives really satisfies, and its benefits aren't just for this world. They last forever. Are you satisfied with Jesus? And we need to define what we mean by satisfied, because oftentimes when we think about being satisfied, the idea that comes to mind is a complacency. I have what I need. I don't want anything more. I'm sure that I'm saved, and we'll see what the next step is. Satisfied with Jesus isn't being complacent. It isn't saying, I finally arrived. Satisfied with Jesus is, He's all I need, but I want to know him more. I want to know him better. That's what Paul said. To to know him and his power working in me, through me. Are you satisfied with Jesus? Truly satisfied. Jesus' comment in in verse 14, when, when you look at that, here's a thirsty man, a weary man, giving an ad for a different kind of quite sure that Jesus' comment was intended to produce a thirst for spiritual life in the woman. What do you do to try to make those around you thirsty for God? Do you you actively do that? I like a concept of of fishing, just throwing out things to see if people will, will bite, if they're interested or not in spiritual things. And if they aren't, I move on. But if I mention something about God in the Bible and they say, wow, you know, I'm interested in that, then we start a conversation. Set up an appointment to talk more about it. Are you actively seeking to make people aware of their thirst, their true need for God? 
And do you seek out people that it's clear are aware of that thirst? Verse 15, she said, "Ah, that's the water that I need. How things had changed. During the conversation, the woman had become the thirsty, the needy one. At the start of the conversation, that was Jesus. But now at this point in the conversation, she was the thirsty one. She was the needy one. And Jesus was the one offering water. It's masterful how he did that. Verses 16 to 19, I read, He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, "Uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus showed the woman that she needed to get right with him, to believe, to repent. Only those that admit that they're lost, that they're dead in trespasses and sins, that they're unable to save themselves, only those persons will be interested in being saved. They need to acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior whom they need. Uh, That Jesus saves those who repent of their sins and trust in him alone. How's that process coming in your life? Are you really saved? What's the status of your growth process, your sanctification process? Do you have what one author from a long time ago, called a holy dissatisfaction. Jesus satisfies thirst, but we're to have a longing for Jesus. More about Jesus, what I know. Uh, Reflect him more fully, more accurately. What's the status of your growth process? You could pray, God, make me want more. Of you. He's given us all of himself, but may it be a practical reality that I'm fully appropriating, that it's not me who lives, but Jesus in me. The woman's partner wasn't her husband. They weren't married, so she was immoral in the man she lived with too. Jesus wanted her to admit that she was a sinner so that then she could receive the water of life. The woman called Jesus a prophet, she said, well, you really know too much. And, but rather than denying her sin, she understood, if not then, at least later, that she needed to forsake her sin and receive the life that Jesus offered her. I'll read the last verses of our text for today, verses 20 to 26. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Uh, You worship, Jesus is talking, verse 22. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, uh, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you 
am he. Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah. The Samaritan's place of worship was Mount Gerizim, adjacent to Mount Ebal, and it was customary that uh, blessings would be pronounced from Mount Gerizim, and the maldiciones, how do you say that in English? The, uh, the curses um, would be pronounced from Mount Ebal. So it was a place of, of spiritual significance. And uh, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem because they were afraid that that would make them lose some of their people. And so they set up their place of worship in Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Jesus talked about an hour that was coming in verse 21. That's the time after Jesus' death and resurrection. Just a few years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. But more importantly, that, that hour that was coming, under the new covenant, the ceremonies and rituals of the law, shadows only of the real thing, were replaced by the Lord Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice, the true one, to whom all the sacrifices pointed. Jesus made it clear, verse 22, you all don't have a clue what you're doing. He made it clear that the Samaritans had missed the mark. God had ordained that salvation would have Jewish origins, both in revealing the truth and in making known the truth of God, as well as in the Messiah himself being Jewish. Verse 23 talks about worshiping God in in spirit and truth. In spirit doesn't mean enthusiastically. It's uh, rather with a personal knowledge of who God is, understanding him, appreciating him, having a personal relationship with him. In truth is what matches up with his word. The heart is more important than what's on the outside. Scripture should trump tradition. A Christian ought to worship God all the time, everywhere. So the Samaritans were way off, but the Jews were off base as well because they put their tradition at the same level as God's word. How do you worship God? Do you do it in spirit and in truth, under the control of the spirit, understanding who God is? God is spirit, He's invisible, we're told in 1 Timothy 6.16. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He doesn't want you to just go through the motions. That's what the Jewish people did. They just sort of went through the motions and thought if we keep the rules, then we're okay. God doesn't want that from you. He's after every aspect of your life. He wants all of you fully surrendered to his control. Are you growing? I don't know what your struggles are. Mine are pride and overeating and anger. Am I advancing? Just recognizing what my sin is, what my weak areas are, could be really a false humility. Some people sin and don't feel badly about it. There's no remorse. Others sin and later feel badly about it and ask for forgiveness, that's a work of the Lord. But as we're growing, do I catch myself before? I'll be saying certain things or eating certain things, and Elaine says, are you thinking about what you're doing? I don't like that question at all. 
but wow, do I need it. I'm grateful for that. And it, it's that idea, do I catch myself before I commit the sin? Is there the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, you're mine, those who belong to me, don't do those things, don't practice those things. Is there growth? That's spirit and truth. Messiah is the Hebrew word for God's anointed in Greek, the Christ. And she said, I'm looking forward to the Messiah showing up around here one of these days. Jesus used the phrase, I am, many times in John to refer to himself. Seven of those times accompanied by a metaphor. And Jesus, in effect, said in verse 26, you're talking with him. He was along for Messiah. You're talking with God is what he was saying. And then, I don't want to steal the thunder from the next preaching, but it's clear from the following verses that after the, they were done talking, the woman went to her town and told everyone about meeting with Jesus. And it appears that by that point, she had already believed in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. So who's saved? Or how can you be saved? Those who recognize their desperate need for spiritual life. Those who recognize that they don't possess that living, vital link with God. Those, uh, God grants salvation to those who confess their sin. They don't deny it or try to hide it. That repent of it and want to be forgiven. God grants salvation to those who trust in Christ alone as the one who paid their debts their sin debt completely. In 1971, John Lennon wrote a song sung by the Beatles. It provides a very wrong picture of what satisfies the deepest longings, but uh, this is quite modern, actually. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Honorable sentiments, the, the result. But living only for today, living as if God doesn't exist, with no sense of responsibility to him, doesn't result in satisfaction. It never has and it never will. Has your thirst for purpose been quenched? Your hunger for security been satisfied. Jesus said that those who follow him have all that they need, both now and forever. Colombia has been plagued by civil unrest for decades. And it comes and goes in its intensity. But frustration with the previous government prompted marching and looting during many months. However, a recent article in Bogota's main newspaper said that the protesters' discontent persists. 
despite the change of government eight months ago. This isn't a political commentary. It just confirms what the Bible says. That I think this is what's going to make me happy, but I get there and I find it really doesn't. Only knowing Jesus personally results in satisfaction. It doesn't come from political theories, from scientific discoveries, from political success, from a promotion at work, from being in a relationship, or winning the lottery. What do you rely on for your satisfaction? Live like God's kingdom is real. Live like his purposes are what's most important to you. Live like Jesus will return today. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to the Father? Do you tell those around you who Jesus is? Are you growing in grace? Do you live agape? I hope you'll do that today and in the coming days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that we can trust in you. Thank you that Jesus truly does satisfy, not a complacent type of satisfaction, but having our sin debt paid and and free to obey you and to be servants of the Most High. In Jesus' name, amen.